Thanks for tuning in. This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, formerly WDFH, Westchester Public Radio. Non-commercial, non-profit, and volunteer-powered. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on Support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. And now, Outcasting. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit independent producer based in New York. Hi, I'm Adam, a youth participant at Outcasting's home studio in Westchester County, New York. On this edition, we continue our discussion about the anti-LGBTQ backlash against the Supreme Court's marriage equality ruling in 2015. This is part two of a three-part series. The entire series is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Sydney. Our guest is the author, journalist, and LGBTQ activist, Michelangelo Signorelli. He's the host of the Michelangelo Signorelli Show, a daily talk show on Sirius XM Progress 127. He's the editor-at-large of Huffington Post Queer Voices. His most recent book is It's Not Over, Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. Welcome back to Outcasting, Mike. Thank you for having me. On our last program, we discussed victory blindness, an idea you develop in It's Not Over. As it's formulated in the book, Victory blindness is the mistaken feeling that because we've won marriage equality nationwide, the battle is over and we can stop fighting for full equality. We spent much of the last program talking about the Orlando Massacre. This week, we turn our attention to discriminatory laws that are being proposed around the country and in some cases enacted in reaction to the Supreme Court's marriage equality ruling in 2015. Let's start by talking about the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RFRA. What was it originally intended to do, and how has it been applied? It really was passed to protect people's religious beliefs who were members of minority groups and who were people whose uh, religious uh, beliefs and practices were under threat, particularly uh, Native Americans and uh, their rituals and their beliefs. It was to make sure that people were respected in the workplace uh, and elsewhere and that they wouldn't have to in any way compromise their beliefs. Uh, it was not meant to allow people to discriminate in any way. And in fact, when it was passed, Democrats and Republicans, uh, progressives and conservatives supported it full force because it was about fighting discrimination, <laughs> not allowing for discrimination. It's been distorted over the years, particularly through the courts. It's been changed and the states have passed their own versions that have been very much about protecting the ability to discriminate against people based on religion rather than protecting people from religious discrimination. Tell us about the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance and anti-discrimination bill that was defeated in November. Some say that supporters of the law weren't prepared for the level of opposition they met. HERO, as it's called, the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, uh, I think was a real wake-up call 
the debate and the uh, political activity around it to what we really face in the public. Houston, a fourth largest city in America, and a very liberal and progressive city where a lesbian was elected as mayor and served for several years. Certainly a city we thought would rally around uh, the rights of LGBT people, but in fact, the city never had any protections for any group, any minorities, women, uh, workers, and LGBT people. And so finally, the city council passed a bill that would include all of these groups because it was the largest city that didn't have such a law. And the Texas Supreme Court <laughs> basically came in uh, in just a, a, a really uh, horrible uh, example of conservative judicial activism and, and basically said it had to go to a vote of the people. Even then, I think a lot of people thought, again, victory blindness taking hold that, wow, you know, we are so uh, supported now. And here is Houston, this very tolerant liberal city. Of course, we'll win it. But those who are fighting against LGBT equality, I had been seeing what they were uh, doing and how they were organizing at some of the conferences like the Values Voters Summit and the uh, Conservative Political Action Committee. And their plan was that when marriage equality passed, if it passed, uh, if they lost at the Supreme Court because they were organizing well before the Supreme Court decision, they would follow what they did after Roe v. Wade passed. They would look for ways to inhibit support for LGBT rights that the public didn't understand as much, where there was some fear or some support for their agenda. With Roe v. Wade, they went in the direction of coming up with what they called partial birth abortion, which was a made-up term, but it was you know something they used for the most rare kind of uh, procedure, late-term abortion, that has only been used uh, when a woman's life is at threat. But it was a way for them to sort of use something to put out there and pass a bill and tap into something people didn't really understand. And they literally used that term. They said, we would have to find the partial birth abortion <laughs> of, of the gay issue. So I think with transgender people, where there's a lot less understanding of what the transgender experience is, and then the issue of children, which has always been something they've used against LGBT people, going back to the 70s when they first uh, began to have success at taking away some of the laws that were passed. It was always about the harm to children because it's an irrational fear people have that their children will be harmed. So in a way, we weren't anticipating what they would be doing, but they were planning it. And I think the bathroom ordinance, as they rebranded that uh, Bill really fed into that lack of understanding of transgender people and that fear of children in so many people that just gets triggered. And I think it did have uh, an enormous uh, impact for our enemies and is something that we should have seen because they've been doing this for a while and they did it with women and, and with Roe v. Wade. But again, I think we weren't really paying attention and we, we thought we would find the public to be much more understanding. And I think we were in for a terrible shock. 
Speaking of bathroom bills, there's the North Carolina bill known as HB2. Tell us about that. HB2 is one of the most horrible and draconian laws against LGBT people we have seen ever passed in this country because it does several things. It rescinded all of the protections in cities and counties across North Carolina for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people that had been passed in employment, uh, in public accommodations, in housing. It took away uh, those laws. It followed a model that had been used in Arkansas as well, and it did it in a way to try to get around the Supreme Court's ruling in Romer v. Evans back in the 90s when Colorado did that because it didn't target LGBT people specifically. It said any group that's not protected statewide does not get local protection. So in the process, they also took away minimum wage laws. They hurt workers. I mean, it was really devastating uh, law. And then they added in there this uh, bathroom bill that basically redefined what sex is in the uh, laws. They rewrote their civil rights law and decided that sex is your biological sex. And they have a definition in the law of what biological sex is. And then they put very detailed pronouncements in there and, and regulations about where people of a specific biological sex can go to the bathroom, uh, how schools would be deciding who used what facilities based on this new definition of biological sex. So it really was a very radical, extreme bill that then was signed uh, by the governor. And I think probably, you know, one of the harshest things we've seen. Ohio has proposed a bill called the Pasture Protection Act, which purports to create a legal right for members of the clergy who don't want to participate in same-sex marriages. But laws like this don't actually provide any protection beyond what's already there. So are they really just aimed at stigmatizing LGBTQ people? These pastor protection acts have been passed in other states, and they're unnecessary because no religious institution has to marry anybody <laughs> that they don't want to marry. Churches, synagogues, uh, and mosques, you know, imams and ministers and uh, rabbis are given a privilege by the state to seal the deal on a license that the state gives out for people to marry. And they're given that privilege when usually a judge or the justice of the peace would be doing that job. And uh, it's their choice to decide who they want to marry. Uh, a synagogue doesn't have to marry a Christian couple uh, that would be against their religion. So it's never um, been something that the courts interpreted as something any uh, – pastor had to do. LGBT people um, can go and marry in a court or at the justice of the peace. But by passing these bills, they send this message to the public that, in fact, religion is being infringed upon, and it's being infringed upon so badly we have to pass this law. Look at how far they've gone. So it's kind of like a psychological effect on members of the public who might be concerned that there's some sort of religious harm being done by marriage equality. And I think that's what it's really used for, to scare people who don't have an understanding of it. 
Give us some other examples of laws that have been proposed or enacted as a backlash to LGBTQ advancements, such as marriage equality. There are, um, by my estimation and some of my colleagues uh, at Huffington Post, probably a hundred uh, bills in the works across the country in states and localities, uh, all of them part of a backlash uh, against marriage equality, all of them to different degrees uh, focusing on various ways to limit uh, that equality, uh, and and some of them uh, bathroom bills. Some of them focused on transgender people. We've had bills that actually put a bounty uh, on transgender people if someone saw a transgender uh, student in a uh, bathroom and it actually did something to make them uh, fearful. They would they would get a, a payment, a restitution uh, from the state. That person would be criminalized. Uh, we've seen those bills. We also see these religious liberty bills that have very different uh, details in different states, but are directed at helping businesses to turn people away. So they use the um, stories that have been in the media, the bakers in Oregon or the florist in Colorado, to whip up support and say that, you know, we shouldn't have to serve people who we don't think uh, agree with our religious beliefs. And, uh, you know, we feel that we should be able to practice our religion without having to serve people in our business that we don't want to. Those laws in every state have been a little bit different. In Mississippi, they added in a bathroom <laughs> a component to that one as well. But they all are attempting to limit rights of LGBT people and, and send a message to people. And even if they know that those will be uh, held unconstitutional, it's really to keep us constantly living in fear and, as they've done with abortion uh, rights as well, constantly in court battling and fighting. Are these laws coming from a genuine public outcry or are they really solutions in search of a problem? I think these laws come about because there's a vocal group of people within the Republican Party uh, who have been there for many years, religious conservatives who've organized for many years, and they are very important to Republican leaders in terms of getting them out to vote. And marriage equality presented a, a real problem to this way that the Republican Party organized the various constituencies within its uh, party for many, many years, because now a major issue that they had been battling against and, you know, they had been running on passing constitutional amendments. And of course, they had the Defense of Marriage Act and, and other issues that they used to get people out to vote. Uh, when the Obergefell decision came down, that was all gone. And so... What we're seeing are Republican leaders and these religious groups trying to figure out a way that they can still keep uh, these people energized, and certainly in an election year, and certainly in a presidential election year, uh, and get them out to vote. And that's where it's all coming from. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. 
where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcasting youth participant Sydney is talking with the author, activist, and journalist Michelangelo Signorelli about the anti-LGBTQ backlash against the Supreme Court's marriage equality ruling in 2015. We're focusing on anti-LGBTQ laws that are popping up around the country. What roles are being played by anti-LGBTQ organizations like the National Organization for Marriage, the Family Research Council, the American Family Association, and Liberty Council, and by groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC? Well, all of these groups have different uh, roles in how they work against LGBT equality and equality for women, uh, African Americans, uh, Latinos. They have all different roles and components, and they focus on various um, different uh, constituencies uh, that they know will gravitate toward their message. And the role of the Family Research Council, for example, for many years has been to push an extreme evangelical Christian belief uh, and ideology that there is no separation between church and state, that there is almost a literal interpretation of their beliefs of the way they see the Bible. And that's a very important uh, thing to say because they've decided what the Bible says, and then they've decided that is how uh, the state should be ordered. And that cuts uh, across the boards on so many different issues, uh, not just LGBT issues, uh, but specifically LGBT issues have been at the forefront for them because they stand against how what they see as sexual uh, immorality and um, homosexuality has certainly been something that they have seen as a, a major issue they need to stand against. The uh, groups like the Liberty Council are legal groups that defend a lot of the people who claim that their religious beliefs are being infringed upon. And it's a way for the uh, anti-LGBT extreme right to, to get a lot of attention with these court cases and make these people into victims. And this is another strategy that they have. It's to create victims and to make it seem like we are the ones who are the aggressors pushing an agenda on them and taking away their rights. Now let's turn to discrimination by businesses and government officials. On earlier editions of Outcasting, we've discussed LGBTQ issues and religion, and we've learned that not all organized religion is anti-LGBTQ, but certainly some religions or religious organizations and religious people are. A lot of the current and proposed anti-LGBTQ laws are being framed as protecting religious liberty or freedom, and even the First Amendment. People who were once seen as the oppressors of LGBTQ people are now claiming that they're the victims and that their freedoms are being oppressed. So-called religious freedom is being invoked by people and businesses to exempt themselves from laws of general applicability. Kim Davis and, in another context, Hobby Lobby come to mind. Should anti-discrimination laws include religious exemptions, 
or do religious exemptions provide an out for the very people the laws are supposedly intended to stop from discriminating? Well, everybody has a right to practice their religion uh, and their faith in peace and according to the way they believe it. But a fundamental uh, American value is that uh, we're all equal and there should be no discrimination even in uh, the name of uh, someone's religious beliefs. We accommodate people's religious beliefs. We certainly um, do whatever we can to allow people to practice their beliefs, even if it means allowing them to take off certain days or pray during a certain part of the day or, or uh, you know, in the workplace uh, or do something that might cause um, a little bit of disruption, but we draw the line and the courts have drawn the line. We do not allow for discrimination against other groups. And that is what religious exemptions that people like Kim Davis uh, and uh, the florists and the bakers and others who have been in the news are, are asking for. They're asking for a religious exemption that allows them to say, I'm not going to interact with a certain group of people. And when you're in a state official uh, and you have a government job, you have to serve all of the people. And your religious belief cannot and should not have you turning people away. And the same is true when you open your doors as a business. You can't simply say, well, we only serve these people and not those people. Uh, these are fundamental rights that we all understand in this country. And so they've taken the idea of religious freedom and turned it into a way to discriminate against people. And it's something that a lot of people are worried uh, about in terms of even the Supreme Court because Hobby Lobby uh, was an example of uh, the Supreme Court seeing an exemption that does discriminate against women. And where will it go when it comes to issues that affect LGBT people, uh, it's a real concern because we've seen the Supreme Court since the civil rights era when the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed shift far to the right and really begin to interpret the Constitution in a way that does allow for discrimination. And that's the big concern we all have right now as these laws go up through the courts. So you'd say that religious exemptions turn an anti-discrimination provision into a license to discriminate, and doesn't that render the law essentially meaningless? The law is meaningless if you say that the people who are most likely to discriminate <laughs> can continue to discriminate. It is something we're seeing right now in Congress uh, with a bill called the First Amendment Defense Act, which many states are now emulating uh, as well, state legislators as well. It would allow for religious exemptions uh, among government workers, among federal contractors that basically negate civil rights laws. So any laws that we pass that protect us would have an exemption for the very people who would discriminate. It just undoes passing civil rights legislation. It also opens the door 
uh, beyond LGBT people to uh, discrimination against so many other people because Again, it's been understood. There's no exemption. If you're a Christian and, and you have a business, you can't turn away Jewish people. <laughs> you can't turn away Muslims who come in to buy a cake. But if you allow for an exemption for one group, well, then what prevents you from uh, saying the same about another group? So it is very dangerous to have these religious exemptions, not just for LGBT people, but for every minority group. Do you think these laws are a reaction to marriage equality and growing acceptance of LGBTQ people? The laws are part of the backlash uh, against marriage equality and the backlash against the general acceptance in culture that we're seeing uh, and, and the support that we're seeing from politicians, uh, from public figures uh, in Hollywood and, and elsewhere. Uh, and, and in popular culture. And I think what we're seeing with people really beginning to come out as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender at younger ages and challenging bigotry in schools and among their teachers, I think all of this has been a real threat to the people who have been opposed to LGBT equality. They see this acceptance. They see uh, this general um, shift toward allowing equality, and it really has turned their world upside down. I think we have to understand it in that way. The country has really changed in fundamental ways over the past uh, several years on a variety of issues. We've had the first African-American president. We have really sort of seen a, a uh, historic uh, shift on so many issues. And I think that has really scared a lot of people. And I think this year we're seeing obviously that playing out in the election with people gravitating toward the ideas of Donald Trump and banning Muslims and deporting people who are immigrants and attacks on Mexicans as well. The country's changed to these people in a way that scares them. People are afraid of change. And I think a lot of this does come from fear and lack of education. Nonetheless, we can't excuse it. <laughs> we have to try to educate people. But I think we should understand that it is coming because we really have seen these shifts. Our important message to ourselves has to be to remain vigilant against it because that's where we allow for it to go on. We, we sort of say, okay, well, we've changed society. We can rest now. And, and we're never going to rest. We're always going to be fighting. We're out of time, but we'll continue this discussion on the next edition of Outcasting. As we mentioned earlier, this is a three-part series on Outcasting. The entire series is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. In part three, we'll talk more about the anti-LGBTQ backlash against the Supreme Court's marriage equality ruling in 2015. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Michelangelo Signorelli is an author, journalist, and activist. His most recent book is It's Not Over, Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. We spoke with him in the Manhattan apartment of our executive producer, Mark Sophus. That's it for this edition of Outcasting. 
Public Radio's LGBTQ Youth Program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by Outcasting's home studio in Westchester County, New York. Our youth participants include Lauren, Jamie, Brianna, Sydney, and me, Adam. Our assistant producer is Alex Mintz, and our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit independent producer based in New York. In addition to our home studio, Outcasting has bureaus in New York City and at Michigan State University. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. You'll also find links to Outcasting Off Air, extra online features from Outcasting. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat that you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Adam. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support, and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.